being up in the mountains and having that connection with the natural world, I think, is just really healthy. It can help you forget about short-term concerns and, you know, you're in a place that's been there forever, as far as you know, and will be there forever. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time, we enjoyed a conversation with Larry Johnston of the B&I Circus Store in Lakewood, Washington, and he shared stories of his pet store, Mangeray, of wild animals, beasts which drew people from across the Pacific Northwest, an indication of the power of our connection to the natural world. Well, today we'll step outdoors to explore nature, skiing up and down the snowy mountain peaks of the North Cascade Mountains. Our guest has climbed nearly all of them, and he's skied off the summits of many. He's the author of Written in the Snows Across Time on Skis in the Pacific Northwest, published by Mountaineers Books, and the recent recipient of the National Outdoor Book Award for Historical Writing. It's the result of 20 years of research, including many first-hand explorations, as well as interviews with old-timers. He's also ski mountaineering historian of the Washington State Ski and Snowboard Museum, and he's chronicled our region's climbing and skiing record keepers through the Northwest Mountaineering Journal. He's also secured the prestigious National Endowment for the Humanities Grant to support the curation of thousands of original early ski mountaineering films and photographs for the Library of the University of Washington. So today we'll explore the history of ski mountaineering in Washington State through the eyes of a modern-day mountain explorer. And we'll hear original stories. And while they were written in the snows, they're tales that illustrate how deepening our connection to nature really strengthens our relationships with others. And we'll even explore some of the spiritual dimensions of the outdoors through the efforts of someone who, while constantly pushing boundaries, has nevertheless sought to create balance both on the ski slopes and in life. And stick around. At the end of today's podcast, we'll point you toward your own outdoor mountain adventures. Let's drive around. So let's welcome our guest today, Lowell Skoog. Hey, Lowell. Hi, Edward. Thanks for having me here. So great to have you. So could we begin with your family? Um, you've said that you owe your love of mountains and mountaineering and skiing to your dad, Dick, and just was curious to learn more about your dad. Yeah, my dad was uh, born in St. Paul, Minnesota uh, in 1920 and came out west, uh, I suppose, after college. Uh, like a lot of folks in earlier Seattle days, he worked for Boeing. He was an aeronautical engineer. I uh, was inspired by Charles Lindbergh flying the Atlantic when he was seven years old, when my dad was seven years old and got into engineering. And yeah, he was a ski jumper in the old school of being a, a, a Nordic ski jumper. Uh, but he was also a downhill skier, and he got all of the kids in the family into doing that. And so I started skiing when I was, I was actually kind of late for the family. I think I was six. And you know, some of the other kids started when they were just really could barely walk. And I've been, you know, skiing and, and getting out in the mountains ever since. And then what is Nordic ski jumping for those that are not initiated? Yeah, Nordic ski jumping is what you see actually when you watch the Olympic Games and you see these guys going down this one big straight in, uh, in run off a big, huge jump and f- soaring for, you know, hundreds of, uh, of feet. You know, they'll, they'll fly for, uh, uh, you know, 100 meters on skis. And uh, there's no ski poles. There's no tricks in the air. It's just how far can you go? And that was what he did. And actually... Uh, in earlier years, you know, in the early 1900s, 
that was a pretty big deal in the Northwest. There was a lot of ski jumping. And in fact, the earliest skiing in the Northwest was ski jumpers. And your dad was a member of the Kongsberger Ski Club. What That's right. That? Yeah, Kongsberg in Norway, it's a town in Norway, was really kind of, in many ways, the, the hotbed of the best Norwegian ski jumpers and world records were set and that sort of thing. And so some of the founders of that club were uh, Norwegian immigrants. And so they said, well, <laughs> let's remember the old country and we'll call our, our club the Kongsbergers. And then can you bring us through kind of your life as a child through high school and your relationship to skiing? Yeah, so all the kids, there's six kids in, in my family, and we all kind of got started in lift skiing by my dad. Uh, my dad was like, well, there were hundreds of families who, who put in, chipped in money to get the Crystal Mountain ski area going. My dad was one of those. And so we would go up to Crystal Mountain, and my first time uh, riding rope tow was at Crystal. And uh, of course, since then, the, the landscape has been groomed a lot more. There's you know, chairlifts and there's no rope toes anywhere up there. But there was this one rope toe that kind of went along this gentle flat slope and had a little bit of a quick rise to where you got off. And being a little teeny kid, that rope would lift me right off the ground. <laughs> you know, you got the rope tucked under your arm and it just lifts you off the ground. Think, okay, a few more feet and I'll touch down again. And, uh, but that was what it was like in those really early days. And then you also were gotten into mountain climbing and mountaineering and yeah, at that age. yeah. I my dad would take us out on hikes, and I was kind of you know mediocre on it, you know. And we had like these old uh, wood frame canvas back Trapper Nelson uh, packs that would just dig into your shoulders, and you know, not at all comfortable. But in college, I started to get interested in climbing and climbing the volcanoes and more interesting peaks in the North Cascades, and. Uh, that got me into the mountains and, and led sort of naturally to wanting to try uh, skiing, you know, in, into the backcountry as well. And then so you got kind of deep into the Cascade Wilderness at that stage. Yeah. So in the, in the late uh, 70s, I graduated from the University of Washington at the end of 1978 and got a landed engineering job kind of right away out of school. And uh, it was around that time that I really started to get interested in, in climbing. And so we started, you know, climbing Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, the, the big, the, you know, the five volcanoes in Washington. And then the Alpine Lakes Wilderness and the North Cascades Park were relatively new in those days. And uh, the park was established in 68 and the Alpine Lakes was, I think, 74. And uh, so the younger generation was just discovering them. And it was like my parents' generation who were did all the hard work to get them, you know, preserved. But my friends and I, my brothers and friends, had this, it's kind of like the kids in the candy store, this amazing wilderness resource to go from Seattle on a weekend, you know, doing my engineering work during the week. And off, I, I look back through my journal and I can't believe I, how every weekend, you know, I'm in my 60s now and I couldn't keep up that pace. But every weekend we'd get out, we'd be up early in the morning, Saturday, driving up somewhere and going up to a high camp and climbing an interesting peak, and then we'd go home and get late, home late in the night, and next morning get up and go to work on Monday. It sounds like you're an obsessive journaler. Can you share a little bit about how that got started? Yeah, yeah. Well, my, my best climbing buddy, who was 
you know, my mentor in a way was my older brother, Gordy. He's four years older. And as I recall, it was like, uh, you know, you have Christmas presents. And one of the Christmas gifts he gave me one time was a little blue book that um, the Mountaineers, I think, designed it and REI sold it. And it was like a blank journal. It was called something like Climbing Notes. And when you opened it up, every page had a, a line for, well, what peak did you climb? What was the date? What route? Who were you with? What gear did you use? And uh, how long did it take for you to up and down? And some notes. And I would, you know, scribble that in. And so I have those going all the way back to the early 70s when I first started, you know, climbing peaks with those friends. Eventually outgrew that and was just using, like, you know, uh, three-ring binders and and putting my handwritten notes in there. And now the thing is up to, I'd have to look, it's thousands and thousands of pages. Yeah, I was reading some of your kind of the names of the different peaks that you explored at this time in the Cascades, Perdition, Spire, the Pyramid, Forbidden, Inspiration, Thunder, Formidable. Are those real names? They are real names. So, of course, there were, I'm sure there were native names before that, but that at some point someone went around and named all these peaks. Who did that and how did that happen? Yeah, I think actually some of the earliest names came from uh, an early forester. His name was Logie Wernstead. And he was one of the first people to go, you know, making crude maps and, and did a lot of naming. Uh, and so that, and, you know, I think the Geological Survey was up there doing mapping and so on. Uh, but some of the names were applied by climbers, and some of the more poetic ones were generally applied by climbers. They might have been members of the Mountaineers. Uh, you know, I think Fred Becky probably has a few names to his credit. He's sort of the legendary guy of my father's generation who wrote guidebooks and climbed everything in sight. Since no ski lifts operate in the areas of our choice, we are forced to walk through the beauty of winter mornings. Long, leisurely ski slopes to entice even a weary climbing muscle. Cool wind and hot sun contending for your comfort. So one name that has always just astounded me was Paradise. And we're going to be talking about Mount Rainier later. But how did that name come about? Paradise at Mount Rainier. Yeah, that, you know, had to have been a really early uh, name. Um, and folks in, in the Mountaineers were uh, involved up there. It, it initially, um, you know, Mount Rainier was climbed uh, back what, by Stevens and Van Trump, you know, way back in the, was it late 1800s? And I don't know if it already was being called Paradise. They call it Paradise Park. Okay. You know, and generally these above treeline zones kind of traditionally were called parks. Uh, we don't tend to use that term now. And, uh, you know, it was given that name, I think, just because it's, you know, has such amazing uh, green meadows, expansive meadows. Um, interestingly, in, in, in a way, ironically or sadly, those meadows are gradually getting grown, overgrown by trees. Mm. You know, as the climate warms and so on, their trees are coming in, so the, the, the meadow zone is kind of creeping up the mountain. Well, let's talk about Written in the Snows. I understand you worked on that for 20 years. Um, what caused you to get started? What was the inspiration? I got into backcountry skiing in the late 70s, early 80s, and with a small group of friends, we started taking skis where they hadn't been taken before. This was a time when a younger generation, kind of the boomer generation, was getting into skiing and mountaineering, and they were inspired by using telemark gear, 
uh, cross-country gear, which had been a boom in popularity in the 60s. In the 70s, people started um, realizing, that, oh, you know, you can actually ski downhill on these, this gear if it's a little bit heavier duty. And so people like Steve Barnett, who was a, a climber and, and a skier, he wrote a book on where to go and how to do that. So, yeah, I got interested in that. And later in the 90s, uh, the American Alpine Club was commissioning books on various aspects of North American mountaineering. And they commissioned a a Colorado writer, a fellow named Lou Dawson, who's a very experienced skier. He was commissioned to write a book uh, that they called Wild Snow. And it was uh, kind of a historical guide to North American backcountry skiing. And uh, it was in some ways a great book. In some ways, I thought it fell short. Uh, one of the things that that kind of hit me wrong, this was before I met Lou, was, you know, the chapter's titles, oh, they had inspiring names like New England was classic by definition and the Colorado was steep, rocky, and wild, and they had other names like that. Uh, but for the Cascades, the name of the chapter was Wet and Scrappy. And I thought, no, wait a minute. <laughs> we can do better than that. Um, and, and I kind of felt like it, it, in a little ways it, it sold the area short. And so it was a few years later that I thought, you know, that's still bothering me. Let, let's, maybe I can do a better job of it. And so in the fall of 2000, I started, said, well, I'm going to go dig into it. And so I put a lot of time into sure. it. Yeah, for years and years. And then you also, at this point, started tracking down like childhood heroes, people that were still alive. Even before the book Wild Snow came out, the thing I think of as the seed of my project was an obituary that I saw in the, in the Seattle Times, and it was in 1996, and the obituary was for a fellow named Dwight Watson. And uh, the reason why his name clicked for me was I had read Fred Becky's um, autobiography, Challenge of the North Cascades, uh, has a brief mention where when they went into an area that's now in the North Cascades National Park called El Dorado Peak, and Fred was with uh, Lloyd Anderson, who was the founder of REI. Um, Lloyd Anderson was a a real interesting and active climber, uh, but much older than Fred. He was definitely a mentor. Uh, On this trip, uh, they had never been into the area around El Dorado Peak, but Dwight Watson had. And so they invited him, and it was the three of them who were going in to kind of uh, check the area out. And in his book, Fred says something like, Dwight had um, something like skied many Cascade snows or something like that and knew this area. And so um, in 1996, he passed away. Dwight Watson did. He was 90-something years old. He, He lived a long life. And I clipped that a bit out of the times, and I just squirreled it away. And so, like, five, six years later, that was the seed when I decided to start looking more, was that obit. And so that led me to uh, the University of Washington, because the obit, I think, mentioned that he was leaving some of his papers to uh, UW Special Collections. And so, and I, so I went there and went through his journals and photographs, and he, he was really a foundational for um, the book, you know, in a way, I think of him as the kind of the grandfather of backcountry skiing in in the North Cascades.
years, from 1925 to 1935, I've looked at Mount Rainier from Seattle, and there was this whole north side, never been climbed. I couldn't believe it. And I was getting itchy all the time, looking at it every day, and I said, and I wasn't going to let the Europeans climb the north side of Mount Rainier first. And you tracked down Wolf Bauer at this time. Yeah, Wolf Bauer was one of the early people I got in touch with. And to um, clarify who Wolf is, Wolf is a is a uh, just a remarkable guy. Uh, he was born, I believe, in 1912, and during the 1930s, um, he was a pioneer of uh, mountaineering and skiing. He and a some buddies climbed the highest peak in North Cascades, what is now North Cascades National Park, called Mount Goody, in I think it was 1936. And uh, he was also a, an active skier. He was in the first silver skis race uh, on Mount Rainier in 1934. And I interviewed him about you know that being in that race. And he was later one of the uh, founders of the mountain rescue movement in uh, the Northwest, which spread throughout the country, this idea of volunteer rescue organizations. He was also the father of kayaking in the Northwest. Okay. He, he was, helped found the, the, uh, the, I think it's the Washington Kayak Club, and did a lot of uh, river kayaking. So he was just a remarkable guy. And, um, yeah, so I, I talked to him and wrote a, a long profile of him, and uh, it was really um, very satisfying to meet somebody like that. He was older than my parents and still going strong. National parks are for people, and in the North Cascades are timbered trails and timberline trails, valley trails and ridgetop pathways, and all of them let the walker experience a cleaner, fresher earth than the one he has always known. So you mentioned the silver skis. Can you tell us what that was, who, yeah. how it was founded? And yeah, so there history? was a, a famous race on Mount Rainier. So in, in the... Um, Skiers started going up to Mount Rainier in the say in the twenties, but it was pretty uh, hit and miss. There weren't that many people doing it, um, and it started to become more popular in the thirties. And um, but this before there were any sort of ski areas. There wasn't a Snoqualmie Pass. There wasn't a Stevens Pass. There wasn't a Mount Baker. People went to Paradise, and uh, as it was getting more popular, Royal Brome, who was a sports writer for the Seattle PI got the idea, and I don't know, I think actually it was a skier who approached him about it, and I think that the guy who had the idea was a fellow named Hans-Otto Giese, who was a, a German immigrant and a great skier. He had been in, like, the German Olympics before he came to this country. And so they had the idea of, let's have <laughs> the ski race of all ski races on Mount Rainier. There's no rope toes, no lifts in those days. So what they want, you know, the, the idea was... Paradise is about 5,200 feet, something like that, 5,400 feet. Camp Muir is like 5,000 feet higher. It's up, you know, up on the, by the glaciers. The Muir Snowfield is not really a glacier, but it's a permanent snowfield. And, uh, you know, that's the standard climbing route up the mountain. And the notion was to have a mass ski race where uh, whoever wanted to sign up would go up there and uh, it ended up being like 64 men and a smaller number of women. And the idea was they would all line up across the Muir Snowfield, which is quite broad, and start at the sound of a gun, just like a horse race. 
Uh, you know, nobody does races like that. <laughs> it's just kind of crazy. And uh, so the idea was on an April day, they got all these folks up there, all the, the, the senior men were up there at Muir. There was a juniors race that started lower. There was also a women's race that started lower as well. Uh, and I think the men went first and then the women and the juniors went later. And so this race on an April day in 34, turned out it was a beautiful day. And they lined them all up across uh, the Muir Snowfield, you know, just right below the climber's hut up there, and started them to the sound of a gun. And <laughs> Wolf was in that race. Uh, John Woodward, who was a 10th Mountain guy, was in that race. And I talked to them in person, which was wonderful. You know, I've got uh, recordings of them describing it. And, uh, you know, Wolf himself, he says, it was just like, uh, you know, everyone was just trying to kind of not crash into each other. And he had actually, um, gone into a tuck, you know, go as fast as he could to try to get out in front. And then the problem was that, you know, while it was smooth snow up near the top, a little lower, all sorts of strange things happened due to wind and sun on the Muir snowfield. And they ended up hitting these sort of waves of snow caused by the wind and the sun acting on the snowfield. And suddenly it's not a smooth snowfield anymore. You're bouncing, getting thrown back and forth, and the people on both sides of you are doing that. And they're, they're all in leather boots. You know, they don't have plastic stiff boots like we have now and cable bindings and so on. And people start crashing and cartwheels and, you know, running into each other. And so it just turned into this, you know, cartwheeling humanity, I think was the way that Wolf described it. Everybody was going up uh, close to 60. Yeah. But the, our skis weren't made for it. We had flexible skis and, and they were just <laughs> flapping in the wind and <laughs> bouncing. and. I always remember one guy, when the guy fell, he, the friction was off his ski, so he'd pass me in the air and boom, there'd be a flash of snow oh and he'd God. be gone. And uh, he crashed at one point and uh, got up and, and he had like lost both of his poles and I think cracked a ski and get off and he's, you know, kept skating on down. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, down at the, at, at the end, it got sticky you know, because you're getting a lot lower. And so you're, you're going really fast and suddenly you hit where it's sticky and it's like, again, makes you want to fall. Don Frazier won that race and uh, his wife, Gretchen Fraser, she was Gretchen Kunick was her maiden name. Uh, they were both Olympic skiers eventually. It was just this wonderful, crazy thing. And, and m many years later, I thought, let's go you know, I, I was when I was getting into research, I wanted to experience what that was like. So I put out, this was back, you know, at the time when the outdoor community is becoming now um, unified, you might say, by online forums. There was no Facebook yet then, and there was no, you know, what they were is they were, in the early days, they were like tech people, people at Microsoft and Boeing and Fluke, where I worked, who would get onto these, what they called news groups, and they would chat. And uh, so, but then eventually there were some websites that sprouted up specifically for people who had special interests, and there was one for skiers. And so on this ski forum, I suggested, after I'm you know, doing research for a while, hey, who wants to go up and rerun the Silver Skis race? And we got, I think it was 18 people, something like that, pretty good group. And, uh, and, and fortunately, it was 2004. Five, I think, 
Yeah, in the spring of 2005. And it had been kind of a dry winter, so um, it wasn't huge snowpack. But we all went up there, and we met up up at Camp Muir, and uh, my younger brother showed up, and some other friends showed up. And, uh, you know, we just, I was the starter, and we didn't have a gun or anything, but, I, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to count down from 10, and then I'm going to say bang. And so that's what I did, 10, 9, 8, 7, you know, 10, and bang, and we all took off. And it was, it was great fun. So getting back to your book, a lot of the names you've mentioned so far are Scandinavian, German, uh, Norwegian. So to what extent is kind of skiing in our area really a legacy of immigration? It's a mix in a way. Um, it's a legacy of immigration and also of just mountaineering. Uh, because the, the earliest groups in, say, Washington, for example, were either you know, generally Scandinavian groups or clubs like the Mountaineers. Uh, which didn't necessarily have that that ethnic orientation, and they got into it because, you know, they would be doing climbing in the summer, and as they're seeing their neighbors, or you know, they're hearing in the papers or so on, that's what the Scandinavians are doing. It's like, well, we should do that too, and so the Scandinavians, you know, m- maybe were more interested in ski jumping, but the people who came from a mountaineering background might be more interested in ski touring. So in a way, in today's parlance, it's a little bit of an appropriation. This one immigrant brought kind of the skiing yeah. technology and knowledge with them. Yeah. But then there were also local people who kind of appropriated that and changed it and converted it in an appropriate way for our mountains. And Sure, yeah. I write in my book about how there was, um, I called it the big snow. I think they were calling it that at the time. I don't know. There was a snowstorm and we got over 20 inches of snow, I think, in 24 hours in Seattle. And so um, some of the local Norwegian businessmen thought, wow, this is our chance. We haven't been able to ski. And this was before there was any kind of decent access to the mountains themselves. And so they thought, let's have a demonstration to show you know, our community what skiing's about. So they envisioned a ski jumping tournament on the north side of, I think it's 4th Avenue North, the north side of Queen Anne Hill. It's like one of the steepest streets in Queen Anne. And they had a ski jumping event there. there this big snowstorm had pretty much, uh, you know, frozen the city. And uh, the event was, it was starting to thaw at the time they had the event, but they did it and later decided, you know, we should find some places in the mountains where we can do these things. And so they did. They had a tournament at Scenic Hot Springs near the Stevens Pass Railroad, and then later up on Mount Rainier in 1917. And what was really cool was that that Mount Rainier tournament was actually won by a woman who beat all the men. Her name was Olga Bolstad, and uh, she was the first ski champion crowned on Mount Rainier. And then also, what is the role of the railroads? Like you mentioned, people went up to Paradise as if they drove, but... Yeah, the railroads were key. And, you know, in those earliest days, in the, say, turn of the you know, 20th century in the 19, early 1900s, the mountains were just not really accessible. And so that accessibility came as the railroads were pushed into them. And so, you know, the first railroad to Seattle came actually along Columbia, and then the, the railroad continued up to Seattle. And so actually... Is sort of remarkable. The first skiing anywhere in the Northwest was along the Columbia, and it was on um, Mount Hood 
And these were people who lived near Hood River and could get up to the east-northeast side of Mount Hood. And they built a, a cabin up there, built in the late 1880s, I think, something like that. And the first skiing that I know of anywhere in the Northwest was to that end. So the railroads were what brought people to sort of the Hood River area, you know, because the railroad came down the Columbia right there. And so these settlements are, you know, springing up along the railroad line. And here's this snowy mountain right above our town. And so that was the first place where people went. So for Seattle area skiers, obviously they wanted to have a more direct line. So they built a a railroad over Stampede Pass. Uh, Originally that went as a surface line and they built a tunnel that would make it better for year-round use. And then just a few years later in 1893, the Great Northern Railroad was put in over Stevens Pass. And so now you've got two railroads going over the Cascades. And uh, Stevens Pass was again, a surface line, and they, you know, right away had problems with keeping it clear and avalanches, so they started building a tunnel and eventually building a really long tunnel. So those were the key places where you could get to the mountains were, uh, you know, on Hood River, the Snoqualmie Pass, and the Stevens Pass Railroad. And so those earlier years in the teens and 20s, that's where people went. But then in the early 1900s, 1909, there was another railroad that was put in, uh, the Milwaukee Road, and that one went over Snoqualmie Pass. So Snoqualmie and Stampede Pass are about 20 miles apart, but at Snoqualmie Pass, you could get out of this tunnel, and the mountaineers um, thought, hey, this is a way for us to have a place to go in the mountains. There was kind of nobody else up there, so near that tunnel, a mile and a half away, they built a lodge. They called it their Snoqualmie Lodge. And they were the people who kind of first started taking skis up to the Snoqualmie Pass area. So let's um, talk a little bit about Paradise Inn and Paradise Lodge and kind of move back to Mount Rainier. So Paradise Inn, the, the first skiing up there was by Milner Roberts, who was a University of Washington professor, and he and some friends had a holiday up there uh, to ski. It was in 1909, and um, as I recall, I don't think the Paradise Inn yet existed, and they made their way up from Longmire, uh, kind of pushing the trail higher each day. A different party would go Skiing up. up. Skiing up, yeah. And finally got up to Paradise, and he wrote actually a, a story for the National Geographic called A Wonderland of Glaciers and Snow. And uh, I wonder sometimes whether the term Wonderland, you know, there's called the Wonderland Trail, whether it might have come from that, you know, his words in that article. But um, the Mountaineers in the 20s, after the inn went in, I think it went in in the early 20s, some of the members of the Mountaineers, you know, were um, well-placed folks, you know university professors and, and so on. Generally, the Mountaineers in those days, there were a lot of professional people involved because they were the folks who could take the time to go out in the mountains. And so some of them had the idea of, let's go up in, in the winter. And they made special arrangements with the park company to stay at the inn at Paradise. So they would go up, I think typically it was like a New Year's outing to Paradise and, and to snowshoe and ski up there. 
And so mountaineers saw that as a way, hmm, you know, we could go up there in the winter and stay at the inn. And so they made arrangements to do that. And so their winter outings were some of the first things that popularized the idea of Mount Rainier as a winter destination. There was a story about an underground city where buildings had been kind of ensconced in snow. And Yeah, you know, the inn went in in the in, uh, early 20s, I think it was, or late teens. Um, and later, and particularly in the later 20s and 30s, Mount Rainier really became the center of, you know, getting out and into the mountains for folks. And they built a lot of what they called housekeeping cabins. They were like tiny houses, like over 100 of them wow. that were built a little bit west of where the inn and lodge were. And during the early 30s, as winter on Mount Rainier was starting to become more popular, the park company would lease these tiny houses, these uh, housekeeping cabins, throughout the season. So you could bring your stuff, bring your, your you know, uh, sleeping bags and so on, and put your own stuff in there. Uh, we'll provide you the frame, essentially. So it was a great deal, and you didn't have to set up a tent, you know, and you could, it could become a regular thing. People would go up there, you know, every week, you know, as they have time off from their jobs. And that continued in the early 30s into the winter. They were using the housekeeping cabins then, too. And then that got especially interesting because Paradise gets, you know, as we know, a lot of snow. And so the cabins would ultimately get buried, and people would come up with ingenious ways of getting into their cabins. Well, one, you just spend the time digging them out. But some folks thought, well, shoot, what if we build a ladder from our roof and enclose that ladder in a plywood shaft and have the ladder go up the shaft and let put a lid on the top and so that then you can just go have another ladder on the outside. You know, as the snow builds up, you have less ladder to climb. Open the lid, go down, and you're in your cabin. You don't have to dig it out. And uh, people definitely did that. I, I have a photograph, in fact, of somebody climbing down on the shafts. And uh, there were other stories about um, people, you know, digging into a cabin and, you know, like a bear had gotten in. <laughs> and so there, there was that kind of thing. Um, so they called it, you know, the buried city in those days. And it was, it was a, a unique and fairly short period in the life of, of Paradise at Mount Rainier. It wasn't too long, but I think before, I, I suppose it was the health department got wind of this, and they sort of thought, that, you know, this somehow this is just not, not safe, not healthy. Also in written in this nose, there's stories of these more affluent people of higher society. Yeah. And then you also devoted chapters to working class people and the role of the Cascade Mountains for them, and specifically the Azurite Mining Company. Yeah, that was a really important story to me, uh, to have both sides and to show that there was a utilitarian. You know, that's one of the things that sort of ski historians uh, like to talk about or debate about is recreational versus utilitarian skiing. And certainly in the Northwest, it was mostly recreational, uh, most of what we know about. But yeah, the Azurite uh, area provided a, a really interesting and unique glimpse into the, the other side of skiing. And to provide a little bit of background, the Azurite mine was a, 
copper and gold mine, I forget exactly what it was, um, up in the North Cascades near um, Hearts Pass is probably the area that people would best uh, recognize that name. And there was a family who was not really connected with the mine, well, only um, peripherally, who during the Depression, you know, after the bank crashed, they just needed to find a way to make a living. And uh, there was Leon and Florence Gorley and their son Mel. And he and his family had built a cabin up in the area near the Azurite Mine, near Windy Pass, and they spent several years during the Depression up there. And they were just um, kind of scraping by, doing some trapping, doing what they called high grading, which is basically looking at old mines and seeing if you can find some, you know, worthwhile nuggets in there. And they actually spent uh, a winter up there during the Depression, and they used skis to get in and out and to get around. And that was a, you know, just the, the circumstances of meeting him were extraordinary. And then the fact that, you know, he had this experience that was so different from the other stories that I had been learning. And uh, there was a really interesting part to that story where um, his mother came down with a appendicitis attack, and uh, they had to get her out to surgery. And she skied out largely under his own, her own power, and Mel went out to summon help and... Uh, he showed me a, a clipping that he had had for all those years of her in her hospital bed. It was in the Wenatchee World, and, it's just, and the title was She Skis to Scalpel. <laughs> she had you know, made her all the way out and uh, saving her own life. There's a chapter in your book called Mountain Soldiers, and you talk about the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division. So moving forward into World War II, tell us about the role of the U.S. Army and ski mountaineers. The 10th Mountain Division was interesting in that um, after the war broke out, there was this sense that America may get involved, America may end up being involved in, in the mountains in Europe. And part of uh, the impetus too was the experience of the Finns when Russia invaded uh, Finland. They fought back against the Russians using their knowledge of skiing and ability to survive in winter. It was a debacle. You know, it was so many lives that were lost. But partly as a result of that, uh, you know, the, the Allies seeing that, you know, the folks in the United States saying, you know, we might have to fight in winter conditions or in the mountains, so we need to be prepared for that. And so they decided to start creating what they called experimental ski patrols, putting uh, regular soldiers on skis, teaching them how to ski, and trying to figure out what was required to do that. And some of those earliest patrols were in the Northwest. And interestingly, one of the key officers was this guy, John Woodward, who was in the Silver Skis race. Uh, so he was, he's a remarkable guy. He was later inducted into the National Ski Hall of Fame and uh, was a ski industry executive and so on. But So he was in those early ski patrols, and they did some pretty remarkable trips. They would did high country trips uh, on the glaciers, you know, across various flanks of Mount Rainier. Then they were shipped out? Yeah, the 42nd Infantry Regiment. They shipped out 
to Europe. You know, it was, it was after D-Day, but they their um, task was to find a way over the Apennine Mountains, uh, so Allies could attack from the south. You know, going up through Italy, and they hadn't been just trained in skiing; they had been trained also in mountain techniques, uh, how to climb, how to belay, how to do that. But most important, just how to be out in the cold. And one of the key things, and I was told this by veterans, was they were taught how to deal, how to prevent trench foot. You know, and if you're out in the cold and the snow, trench foot would, you know, knock out lots of their manpower. And they learned how to, how to deal with that. Uh, but they did end up uh, being sent to Italy where several attempts had been made to get through uh, a mountain chain there. In, say, comparison to the Cascades or the Rockies, we would consider that, you know, this almost a line of hills. It wasn't uh, rugged or glaciated or anything, but it was fighting in, in hilly terrain is always a challenge because the the high ground has the advantage. And so they learned to come up with, you know, techniques to deal with that. And so the influence of the people who had been in the 10th Mountain Division was vast following the war because many of those folks, due to partnerships they had made and so on, people they had met, were the people who really gave birth to the post-war ski industry in America. Along came the skier, fresh from off the slopes. So we ask our guests to bring some objects to share, and I see a whole array of things. Yeah, uh, so I mean, I mentioned in my book that my dad got uh, all of us kids, there were six kids in, in our family, got us into skiing, you know, at a relatively young age. And I have a few... Uh, mementos from my dad. Uh, he was a ski jumper. He was an alpine skier as well. And, you know, actually only one of my siblings got into ski jumping for a while. The rest of us, we were all alpine, alpine skiers. So I have a ski jump trophy from 1961, finished third in the senior men. So he was still jumping. And in 1961, he would have been 41 years old. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's getting up there for a ski jumper. So I'm, you know, proud of it. I remember going to watch him jump, and, uh, you know, he was not stylish. He'd go off, and his arms would be like windmilling in the air, and, and he'd land, and he'd, he'd often go, ah, oh, nuts. <laughs> he, my, my mom and dad, you know, there were no four-letter words. It was just, ah, oh, nuts was about as radical as he ever got. So what else do you have? Well, let's see. I've got an a, a old pair of my dad's ski goggles, which are kind of great looking. They're just... And I remember, I think I had a pair of these goggles, too. They don't look at all like modern ski goggles, and unfortunately, they're missing one lens. And then there's a funny-looking uh, piece of aluminum with a wood handle and a, and a strap on it, and uh, it's a rope toe gripper. You know, in the early days, much of skiing was on rope toes. Chairlifts came along in the, you know, well, especially 50s and 60s, they really took off. But back in the 30s, it was mostly rope toes. And rope toe wear you out. And so at some point, they came up with, you know, rather than having to grip the toe with your mitten-covered hands, they created sort of this clamp that it levers onto the, the rope, and then you just grab, you hold the handle. 
And uh, so that's what that thing is. The thing about a rope toe gripper is you got to remember to ungrip it when you get to the top, because if you don't, you're going to get pulled through the pulleys. Mm, and wow. that, <laughs> that's why they put those, they put these, of course, nobody knows rope toes anymore, but there was always a, a cable where if you went through it, it would basically turn the power off and stop the rope toe. And uh, yeah, that was part of the deal. There's some sunglasses and an old Crystal Mountain uh, Seasons Pass from my dad from way back. And then I guess I've got his, his dog tag from when he was in the Navy back oh, wow. in the war. So I know that you've had a lot of joy out of your mountaineering, but also a lot of loss. Yeah, I've lost a number of friends, and I've unfortunately lost some family, too. Um, my my brother Carl, who was uh, a couple years younger than me, was, uh, especially when I was first getting into some of these high country ski trips, was one of my most frequent partners in the 1980s and 90s. And he uh, got into... Oh, there's a branch of skiing where people try to ski steep slopes. And uh, just as climbers are often interested in who, who can climb this route first, like who's first to climb Mount Rainier, uh, skiers over the years have sometimes been interested in, well, here's a steep climbing route, and can you ski it? And in, it, it kind of got started in France in the 60s, skiing old established classic climbing routes. And it's taken you know, North America by storm decades later, and um, hundreds of routes like that have been done in the Northwest. And my my brother Carl had done one of those. He had done a steep descent on the Mowich face on Mount Rainier in 1997 with some friends, and it was the first time it had ever been skied. It was a established, you know, steep climbing route. And so he was doing a lot of photography and uh, doing adventurous trips and one trip that he went with, with with a friend was to South America to climb a peak called uh, Mercedario. It's, I believe, the second highest peak in the Andes. And uh, he fell during the descent uh, and tumbled for thousands of feet. And this was in the uh, 2005. And uh, so, yeah, that was that was a, a shock to our whole family and, and um, definitely colored my feelings about that branch of ski mountaineering. Uh, basically, the, there's this notion of what they call s- extreme skiing, and there was a somewhat flippant but uh, long-lasting definition by an early practitioner when people said, well, what is this thing? He says, well, if you fall, you die. Of course, the, the people who do it say, well, that's certainly not the point, but um, yeah, he, he died in a fall. And he was a photographer. He um, was a photographer, quite, a, quite an excellent photographer, and I have his um, collection. Interestingly, his accident occurred just as digital photography was really taking off. So his collection is largely slides. And I have in my house four file cabinets full of his transparencies. And then 10 years later, my wife, Stephanie, passed away in a... She was hiking with girlfriends in the Sierra Nevada. And they were crossing a pass, a high pass that they think that maybe there had been a, an earthquake or something and it had changed. The, the crossing of the ridge they had to do was much more difficult than they had expected. 
and they were, she had kind of investigated it. I think she had probably more climbing experience than any of her friends. And uh, as they were sort of ferrying a pack or something down, that she fell and, and, and passed away there due to the, the fall. So that has been tough. And, and you know, my, my book is, is dedicated to their memory. Um, and finishing the book was, to me, important for a lot of reasons, but some of it was to, you know, capture those, you know, those memories of my brother and some of my experiences with him, as well as of the larger community. And then you've had other losses as well, other friends. Yeah, dozens. Mm-hmm. And does that color your feeling about mountaineering and skiing? Yeah, it, it certainly provides a seriousness, and um, I have always been a pretty cautious person, and I, my sense is that, you know, you should just have a, 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 a big margin of error you should ha- and, and a, a big margin of what your skills are. And if you're right on the edge, that's not where you should be. You should be way within your, your level of, of comfort. So I don't climb as much as I used to, but I still enjoy being out in the mountains. But it, it gives you a real sense of the seriousness of it. And writing the book was, I think, an important process for me to work through. It doesn't deal so much with those issues, but just working through my relationship with my community and with the mountains and with the history of this area has been really valuable to me. It's been a a real lifelong project. And then we ask our guests to share a place that they care about in the Pacific Northwest. We've talked about so many places today, but is there any place that's particularly special for you? One place that I have a long association with that I've always really loved is the North Cascades Highway. You know, it was opened in, what was it, 72? Uh, And that has been a place that I've done a lot of hiking and climbing and skiing and really enjoy getting out there. It's interesting, you know, since the the COVID pandemic, there was a big rush by people to find things to do outdoors because that was the safest place to be. And we've never really gone back to what was normal before COVID in terms of there's so many people getting out, recreating. It's wonderful that people are having that experience. It's kind of tough for somebody who remembers what it was like before. It's like, you could just get up someday and go and find a place to park. And now it's like, you got to plan ahead. <laughs> or maybe you need to get permits and so on. So uh, yeah, the world keeps changing. And then to what extent is mountaineering a spiritual endeavor? You know, people go to church on the weekends. And what is the impact for you? Yeah, to me, it's a, it's a centering. It's a, re- a reconnecting with the natural world. And yeah, I wouldn't call myself a religious person. I guess I, I could probably call myself a spiritual person. And being up in the mountains and having that connection with the natural world, I think, is just really healthy. And it can help you forget about short-term concerns. And, you know, you're in a place that's been there forever, as far as you know, and will be there forever. And so that's a really great grounding kind of a experience. Global warming, climate change, 
how have the community of skiers responded either locally or nationally? Or what? How do you think we should be responding from the perspective of people that love the mountains? Global warming is the elephant in the room. It's the elephant squashing the room. Uh, it's it's having uh, amazing effect. I mean, we still are having ski seasons, some better than and some worse. As a mountaineer, as someone who enjoys getting into the higher mountains, global warming particularly hits me. Uh, our mountains are glaciated. You know, our mountains are unique in America, below Alaska, for the amount of glaciers we have on our volcanoes and also on the, the big peaks of the North Cascades. Mm-hmm. And though I haven't been getting out as much I, via the internet and seeing reports and so on, uh, our glaciers are just getting clobbered. They're just getting slaughtered. And um, it's, it's heartbreaking to me, just as someone, both as a mountaineer who's enjoyed them in better times, and this is one significant part of our, our ecosystem that is really getting clobbered. And there's a lot in the Northwest, uh, water sources, fisheries, and so on, that depends on glaciers. And I saw just recently pictures of Mount Baker uh, on the south side of Mount Baker, where as far as I could tell from the picture, the, the snow, they were down almost to, to ice all the way to the summit mm. on the south side. And glaciers cannot survive when that happens. You have to have snow that lasts from one winter to the next. And the reason it is a glacier is that the snow causes the glacier to gradually deform and flow and crack and so on. That's what defines a glacier. So, yeah, global warming is, um, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's, I, I will say, in fact, that I've, I'm starting to tell friends, I think that for me, in some ways, the future of outdoor recreation is riding my bike starting at my house because I don't have to start up the car and I can see the beautiful Puget Sound area. And that's what I've been doing a lot of. I still want to get in the mountains, but I'm doing it less than I did. And I, I sure hope that we as a society, you know, take this issue seriously and really put some resources into trying to figure out what to do and when necessary, you know, we need to make changes in our own lives, our own lifestyles. As this issue continues, it's good to have your book because it's a reminder of... Yeah, it's a reminder of what we've had and what, you know, how things change and, and, and it's, a, it's a, a record of this inspiring time. For those that want to learn more, we can direct them toward the Ski and Snowboard Museum at Snoqualmie Pass, right? Which you helped yes. curate a portion of. Yeah, mm-hmm. I helped with that museum. And then there's the Alpenglow Gallery. Yeah, Alpenglow is A-L-P-E-N-G-L-O-W dot O-R-G is my website. I started it quite a few years ago. It's over 25 years old. And it has personal stories, stories about other people. It has a section of uh, an online journal that I I edited for a while called the Northwest Mountaineering Journal. And it also has a section where it says Northwest Ski History that is my basically my research database. It's the database that I compiled while I was interviewing and and digging for information for my ski history work. Well, one thing that strikes me is your generosity. Everything you've unearthed, you've made available to others. Yeah, yeah. There's, it it would be hard to write a book just from that. You know, writing the book was an interesting process because I would go to the website and then I'd have to go diving into my files and my bookshelves and so on. But the website is a huge, 
it's a huge part o- opening for people to learn. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And thank you for being our guest today. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Nine new pounds of rucksack in MRE or two. We'll climb the mountain like our grandpas used to do. When can I re-up so I can jump back in the snow? The fireplace back home is warm, but I live for the cold. Join us next time for a conversation with Zach Bolotin, who you can find whipping up beautiful beverages at his Porchlight Coffee and Records on Capitol Hill. He's also a photographer, author, publisher of books and records, illustrator and graphic designer. His clients range from Microsoft to the band Death Cab for Cutie. His parents' love of the Seattle World's Fair resulted in Porchlight's publication, 62 Souvenirs, Keepsakes from the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. And an upcoming book by Zach showcases architectural photography by commercial artist Art Huppy, known for his documentation of Seattle's legendary Northwest School. And at a time when some talk of pulling up stakes and leaving Seattle, you'll find Zach's devotion to his evolving city infectious. So be sure to join us. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther with photography by Travis Lawton. Administrative support from Mary Mansour. Theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway with additional music by Andrew Weathers as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. Additional audio for this episode came from the Mountaineers Archives and from the University of Washington Library Special Collections. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center, and I'm Edward Krigsman. You've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories.